Well, good morning, church family. I want to start off this morning with a story. A story from Olympic history. It's the story of John Stephen Akari. He was a, a distance runner in the 60s and 70s. About 12 miles into a 26-mile race, there was some jostling between the runners. And he fell badly. It wasn't just like a little, you know, skip and fall. He fell down hard. He wounded his knee, his shoulder slammed against the pavement, his leg was bleeding, his knee was dislocated. The medical staff urged him to withdraw, but he continued running, really limping along, sort of a slow jog. He finished dead last among the 57 competitors who completed the race. Over an hour had passed since the winner Crossed the finish line. And while they were filming, there was a television crew and it was filming the medal ceremony. They heard in an empty stadium with only so many people left, they heard clapping and they caught on film as John Stephen Akari crossed the finish line, his agonizing finish, this courageous man. Matter of fact, of the 75 people who started that marathon in 1968, 18 others did pull out. And in fact, many people don't remember the name of the gold medal winner that year. But they do remember this man, John Stephen Akari, who despite all obstacle, despite all difficulty, finished the race in the most difficult circumstances. Some have said he has the honor of the greatest last place finish ever. Sometimes I feel like that's the, that's the race we're running, right? When he was interviewed later and asked why he ignored the advice, the advice to quit and why he kept, kept running, he said this. He said, my country did not send me 10,000 miles to start the race, but to finish it. See, he was the example of, of a sort of courageous runner, and at another level, level, his example points Christians to another kind of running, to this race we're all running into eternity. And so his story, though not about winning gold, is very much about finishing the race. Against all odds, despite obstacles and trials and difficulties, against rational advice to continue and to keep going. The older apostle Paul, under house arrest, facing the prospect of a trial, perhaps death, and dare I say, probably a little bit lonely, penned these words to his spiritual son, Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Together, I want us to fight the good fight, to press into Jesus, to deny that urge to live for self, to finish the race, to keep doing as individuals and at a church, as a church, what he's called us to do, and to keep the faith, to surrender more and more to the Spirit of God, to grow in our love and understanding of him. 
See, I want us to realize that while the marathon runner said, my country did not send me 10,000 miles to start the race, but to finish, our God didn't rescue us and redeem us and set us free so when things got tough, we can walk away. See, when you know Jesus, not when you know about Jesus, not when you have some facts about Jesus, but when you know Jesus, when things get tough, You know, there was a time in the Bible where the disciples, Jesus was preaching something they didn't understand. They began to walk away. And Jesus looked at his closest disciples and he said, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter, Lord, where are we going to go? You're the Messiah. You have the words of eternal life. He knew who Jesus was. And so despite trials, despite difficulties, when we know Jesus... Even when everything outside looks bad, even when everybody's advice is to walk away from the faith, even when even our flesh and our, and our intellect, when it says it just doesn't make sense, when things are bad, why would we walk away from the only source of all good? So Lord, I pray now that you do what only you can do here, that through the power of your word and your spirit that you capture our hearts. Lord, we submit ourselves to you, and I pray that you have your way in and through us, God. Search our hearts. Lord, meet us here in this place. Give us a fresh revelation, a fresh understanding of your love, of your presence in our lives. Open our hearts, open our minds. Speak to our spirits. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to introduce a video. I'm sure it doesn't apply to anybody in this room, but nonetheless, we're going we're gonna to look at it. So let's take that. You know, we had, I think, Pastor Jamie preached a couple weeks ago, talked about he doesn't like New Year's resolutions, and then Sam said, well, they can be good, and, and I agree with both those sentiments. I don't, I don't do New Year's resolutions, but every day we have a chance to make good choices, to change bad habits, to do what we ought to do. 
And so I think too often New Year's resolutions can just become empty promises or sort of wishful thinking, and so we end up discouraged and we give up. We start off well-intentioned, and there's a road I heard about that's, you know, something to do with well-intentioned. But I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to read through the Bible. I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to save money. I'm going to go on social media less. And those are good things. Don't get me wrong. We should try to do those things every day. We should try to make changes and, and make good choices. But we can't do those things in and of our own strength. We need Christ. And we need each other. And we need each other. The title of the message this morning is We Resolve. We Resolve. So why that title? Because Christianity comes with a resolution, doesn't it? I mean, we complicate things, but when we become a Christian, our resolution is, I want to become more like Jesus Christ. doesn't matter how you started the race. It doesn't matter how badly you've been banged up in the race. It matters that with the power of Jesus and the community of people around you that we finish the race. And the goal is the same. The goal is not for me to be more like you or for you to be more like me. The goal is for all of us to be more like Jesus. Every second of every minute of every hour of every day that we draw draw breath to surrender to the spirit inside me. God expects that when we accept Christ as our Savior, that we will be radically transformed and not by our own efforts. That's why Paul tells the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, what began in the Spirit, are you now trying to perfect in the flesh? When you were set free, when your status was changed, was that anything you did? And yet, we we take our will back and we try to do it all on our own. So this is our resolution that we work together with God, that we work together helping each other. See, instead of working together with God, how often in our lives do we work against God? And we work against each other. Can you imagine what our lives and our church would look like if we together worked according to God's will for our lives, if we cooperated with what he was trying to do and if we worked together? Instead, as individuals, we fight against God, and then collectively, we fight against each other. In John 17, Jesus prays. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus is praying in Scripture. John 17, you can read it. He's praying for us. He's praying for you and me. And one of the things he prays for is not that we're going to agree 100% on every little thing, but he prays for his church that we would be one so that the world would know who Jesus is. You know what the world knows about us? The division. The infighting. See, in in the New Testament time, there were local expressions of a church, and that was it. You couldn't say, well, Paul, you know, I kind of like your church, but I don't like those curtains, so I'm going to go down the road. That was it. It was imperfect. It was messy, but it was a commitment to the word of God. You read the the book of Acts, second chapter, verse 42. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, means to real intimate community and to prayer. And they did it with glad and sincere hearts, the Bible says. See, I know this has been a tough year for, for many of us. And you know, pastors and leaders aren't immune to that. 
I think sometimes people think, you know, that, that somehow we're, we're like insulated from difficulty. A large number of pastors have left the ministry in the last two years. In fact, George Barna has said that over 60% of pastors in the past two years have said they've seriously considered walking away from ministry. More than at any other time where he's done the survey. And you think of that, and that's discouraging. I've been in ministry over 20 years, and like many of you, I've seen my share of difficulties. I lost my father to cancer. My dad was my hero. You know, I, I, I survived an addiction that almost took my marriage, my family, my life. In the last decade, I've seen over 40 friends lose their lives to overdoses. I stopped counting after that. In a decade, in 10 years, people my age and younger, men and women, close friends, have lost their lives. More people died last year of overdoses. As a matter of fact, 100,000 people at least died last year from overdoses. That's double the amount of people that died in the entire Vietnam War. The numbers are so staggering, we don't even have a place to put it. People are broken and they're hurting. I've seen people walk away from Jesus. I've seen people walk away from church. I've had people walk away from me. The past year has been the hardest year of my ministry life, but I am not discouraged. I'm not discouraged because I know God is good, because I've seen him working And here's the main reason I'm not discouraged. I feel closer to Jesus than I've ever been, ever in my life. Pastor Jamie and I have been friends for 33 years, and we're closer together than we've ever been. You know why? Because so many times we just go, I can't, I can't do this. And God's like, yeah, you're right, you can't. But I can. But I can. See, I have new friendships that are like family. And we need to encourage and care for each other to build up one another. At the beginning of this journey, we said we're better together, and that's true, but we're also stronger together. There are people in this room right now who are barely holding on. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of books, and to me, the most theologically profound is Screw Tape Letters. And it's, it's a book that's written as an uncle devil to his nephew who's a devil, and he's sort of mentoring him on how to keep Christians away from the enemy, which is God. And then the number one strategy is to get their focus off of Jesus and to get their focus off of themselves and have them focus on everybody else. And man, do we fall prey to that. Man, instead of helping, instead of being open and aware to the people who are broken right on the side of us, we're so wrapped up in either our own junk or in some perceived injustice that we miss out on the opportunity to radically love people who radically, radically need love. See, nobody said this life was easy. Jesus never promised that ministry wasn't going to come at a cost. And I, I think, I'm sure, in fact, that in times of struggle, that if we listen, we hear his voice with more clarity than ever. Than ever. Pass the sham. Pass the sham. That's not. <laughs> Pastor Sam. 
shared this quote with me the other day from Richard Bauckham. It said, the biblical authors may not have faced the wonders and terrors afforded by advances in nuclear or genetic science, yet they were shrewd judges of the human condition. And they believed firmly that the human hope for salvation lay finally not in technology or politics or culture or nature, but in God's promise to make all things new. And if our context, if what we're going through right now, if our circumstance, if our situation, if everything we see in the race, if our stumbles and our injuries, if those things allow the biblical voices to be heard more clearly and to be taken more seriously, then I say amen. And what that means is right now, though we face difficulty and we can't minimize that, there is great opportunity. For us as individuals to press into Jesus Christ, first and foremost, and as an overflow of that relationship, for us to make radical differences in the lives of people who thought their security was in their health or in their wealth and are finding out now that everything is uncertain. We have a chance to live out the gospel because people are open and they're asking questions. And everything they thought would never happen is happening. And everything they thought they knew is becoming undone. But God is never changing. Always the same. Always can be trusted. Always keeps his promises. The source of justice and mercy and grace and love and beauty and truth. How can we walk away when things go bad from the only source of everything good? And so if our context clears the ground to allow the Bible to penetrate more deeply, then amen. If what we go through gives us a greater hunger, a greater understanding, a greater appreciation from the scriptures, then amen. Because David and Moses and Joseph and so many other people in the, in the Bible, they had questions and they had doubts and things didn't go the way they thought they were supposed to go. And then what? And then what? They finished the race. They kept going. You know, I, I love when people think like the Bible's filled with a whole bunch of people who have it all figured out. You just know when people say that they've never read the Bible. It's like, no, it's actually a list of people who are a hot mess most of the time. And some of them gave up. But there were so many that not because they were extraordinary, but because they worshiped and followed an extraordinary God that finished the race. And so you know what I discovered? You know what keeps me going? That now more than ever, we have an opportunity to lean into the struggles, to go deeper in our relationship with Jesus, and to come out more resilient, more sure of who we are in Christ, and more sure of our calling as a church. So together, going into this new year with all its opportunities, we can resolve to grow closer to Jesus. First and foremost, you know, we complicate things. We want to make it a whole bunch of... Reading the Bible, praying alone and together, going to community group. The whole purpose of all of that is to grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus. In case you didn't know, that's our secret strategy. Every one of us grow closer to Jesus Christ to walk with a greater love and a greater understanding and a greater trust of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the goal. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's why Jesus calls, it's a follower and you know what I like about following? 
is you can't kind of follow somebody, right? You're either following. I mean, you, sometimes you're crawling. Sometimes you're, you know, you're laying down and you're just barely making it. But you're either following or you've stopped following. There's no kind to follow. But together, church, we can follow Jesus. We can resolve to go, grow closer to him. We can resolve to be a community of real relationships. I don't want to be a place where you walk in the room and you say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And your, and your lives are falling apart. Worst thing in the world we can do is play church. Don't do that. Somebody says, how are you doing? I want us to be a place where we can say, you know, it's been a rough week. It's been a rough month. It's been a rough year. Can you pray? Pray with me. Pray for me. This is the hottest thing to do. But man... That's what community of faith looks like. That's what the church is supposed to look like. We're a refuge. Jesus Christ is a refuge. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest for your souls. Beautiful invitation, right? I don't know about you, but I need rest for my soul. So we resolve to be close to Jesus. We resolve to be a community of real relationships. And we resolve to be culture changers. Primarily by the way we live in love. Not because of how we vote or the things we stand against. Don't get me wrong, that has a place. I'm not saying you disengage. Be active. Stand up for what's good. Stand against what's bad. Vote the way you need to vote. Do all those things. But don't think for a moment that anything's going to change the human heart other than the power of Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah stood at a time of people rebelling against God. People who were against God. People who were fearful And this was God's counsel to him. Isaiah 8, verse 12. Do not call conspiracy all that the people call a conspiracy. Ever hear anybody say that the Bible speaks directly to us? Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. In other words, don't buy into the culture of fear or conspiracy or the distractions or all those things. Trust the Lord. Put fear in him alone. See, there's three overall themes in the New Testament, and the first and the greatest, the culmination of all Scripture. All the Old Testament points to it, and the New Testament talks about it, is the coming of Christ, the promise of the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promise. The coming of Christ. First theme of the New Testament. Jesus is the culmination of the self-revelation of God to the world. The second great theme is that we're called to be united in Christ. To be together as his people. To do his work. That he came to set us free from self and from sin and from death. But he came to set us free towards something else. Not just from the past. We're not just set free from what's behind us, but we're set free to what's in front of us. Amen? We're called to be united in Christ. And the third great theme of the New Testament is that we're called to change the world together for God. We're called to be and make disciples. We're meant to change the world system. 
Everything we do should be to glorify God, to, be, to obey his command, to be and make disciples. And so our main section of scripture this morning is going to be 1 Corinthians. I'm going to be reading through, through chap, parts of chapters 9 through 11. So if you want to look, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm going to start in verse 19. So 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19, and I'm going to skip around. But read through, read through this section of scripture. I mean, just there's a lot here. And I'm going to do my best to pull out some, some points I want to pull out. But you could take a passage of this and you could preach on it for a week. So I'm going to begin chapter 9, verse 19. Paul gives us his view on missions, his, his missiology. This is Paul's view on engaging the world, on witnessing, on how he lives in a world actively opposed to Jesus Christ. Because sometimes people say, oh, things were better back then. When they had the cult prostitutes or feeding people to lions, which part was better? I'm just not sure. See, perspective is everything. From the beginning of time, sin. Man's heart corrupted. Nothing changes under the sun. So this is Paul's view. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Now, I want to say this. Because we can just, we can read that and we can, we, can, we can lose the theological depth in what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that I was once a slave to the law, that I was once a slave to sin, that I was once a slave to death, and now I am truly and fully set free. He's not saying I was in jail and they let me out or I had some struggles. And No, he's saying... I am fundamentally different. He's beginning by saying the promise of Christ is to come and set you free from sin, from death, from self. And Paul's acknowledging that fact, that he has changed. He is fundamentally different than who he was. And it's interesting to note, incidentally, that Paul who's claiming here his freedom, starts most of his New Testament letters, and he says, I'm the bondservant of Jesus Christ. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Because Paul knows that we've been set free from ourself to now be a slave to Jesus. That only true freedom comes from being a slave to him. So this is very, very deep. Paul's saying that, and we can miss that. But that's the point he's making. It's a theological. He's saying, I was once blind, but now I see. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was once enslaved, and now I am free. And now he's going to say, though I am free, though I belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I don't know about you, but I don't think like that. Can I be honest? I don't think like that. Paul's going, you know what I do with my freedom that Christ bought for me with his blood? I use that freedom for the benefit of everyone around me. Dare I say this? Ready, church? I don't know what you've heard in the past. It's not about you. It's not about you. I mean, it is about you in the sense that Christ came to set you free. But then it's about you insofar as you become part of the community of faith. And Jesus himself said, I came not to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. He was God. If anyone deserved to be served, it was him. And he came to serve and to die for you and me. And we can't die to ourselves and our preferences for five seconds. 
for somebody else. Paul saying, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. Paul's qualifying, he's saying, look, I tried to find ways to be in relationship. I tried to contextualize. I didn't become like one that was lawless. I didn't submit myself to the law of the Jews, but I became like them. I related to them that so that I might win some. To those not having a law, I became like the one under the law, though I am not free from God's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. And then this is sort of the, the general statement, right? This is his main point. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some or win some. And he said, I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Even that's a deep statement because what Paul's saying is that to fully share in the blessings of the gospel, it has to change you so radically that you're not just worried about you. So Paul's saying, I've been set free. And you know what I'm doing with my freedom? Because I I want to enjoy the full blessings of God. I'm using my freedom to serve people. And you know why I'm doing it? Because I want to win them. Paul's saying every conversation I have, every text I send, every phone call, every interaction, every action, everything I do with my time and my resources, everything I do, I do with the idea that I just want to win people to Jesus. I mean, I don't even think we think like that, let alone do that. Paul's going, look, this is, you want to share in the, in the, Blessings of the gospel, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. The main thrust of his argument, I've become all things to all people, that I might win some. See, do we simply want to win arguments or win souls, right? I've said before, do we want to be right or do we want to be righteous? Paul's always finding a way in his ministry to understand. He always takes people from what they know about God. Could be nothing at all. Maybe they're opposed to God. But Paul always tries to take people from what they know about God and bring them to what they need to know. He has a fuller understanding. He has the only God that is. The God who created all, who was before all, who sustains all. Let me tell you about him. The Father who loves you who longs for a relationship with you, who wants to, in him, in his very presence in relationship, fulfill every desire you've ever had. And Paul does it with grace and humility and love and concern, not with condescension, not with arrogance. I mean, you may win an argument and lose your testimony. You may be right. You may, you may win the debate but the person saw nothing of Jesus in you and saw everything of the Pharisees. Ask people who aren't Christians to describe Christians to you. And most of the time, a lot of the time, they're going to describe a Pharisee instead of Jesus. How is it, church, that so often it's so easy for us to become more like the Pharisees than Jesus himself?
It was the religious people Jesus had a problem about, about when he was here. So Paul continues the need for self-discipline. He says this, verse 24. Do you know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Paul's saying, look, no matter what it is you do, if you want to be the best, you have to be disciplined. It's going to take your time and your effort and your focus. It's going to take everything you do. And it says they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Paul's going, do you know the training and the discipline it takes to be good at something? Jamie probably has 100 trophies. I don't have any trophies. I have one trophy. One trophy. I got it from judo. I took judo. That was actually the building right on the side of us with the, the little peoples that I took judo. I was eight years old when I got the trophy, but that still totally counts. <laughs> I was reading an article the other day about the, the best chess player. This is probably why I don't have any, any trophies. But So this guy that's playing chess right now that just won, he's, they say he's the, I mean, chess has been around for 1,000, 1,500 years. They say he's the best player to ever play the game, highest rated, unbelievable. And I think to myself, and you can take anything, take your favorite you know the discipline and the time it takes, the focus, the hours. And yet, in the end, nobody cares how many trophies Jamie has, right? And Paul's going, if you're going to put that much effort into working for something that doesn't matter, nobody cares when you die what your bank account looks like, your education, nobody cares. Paul's saying, then how much more? ought we to do for a crown that will last forever. So Paul says this, verse 26, Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave. So after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul's going, I don't want to be a guy who just tells everybody else, who just preaches to everybody else. I've told you before, I'm not preaching to you. The word of God is preaching to us. I don't read this and go, yeah, let me, uh, I mean, most of the time if I use an example, and I don't do this like false humility, I'm like, oh yeah, I definitely got that wrong, and I'll lead with that, because why? Because we're on a journey. We're trying to figure it out. We need Jesus. We need each other. It, it gets easier in the sense that you have a trust and faith in him where, you, you know, you can go through so much stuff where you just go, all right, Jesus, I'm, you know, whatever, whatever comes my way, I know you're with me. But it's, it doesn't get easy. Life is, is not for the faint of heart. Life never gets easy. But life with Jesus, I mean, what an adventure, right? Chapter 10, verse 23, Paul says this, I have the right to do anything you say. I can do whatever I want. Paul's saying, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything's constructive. Not everything is productive. And then he says, verse 24, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. It's a theme he's going to repeat again and again. What motivates you to do what you do? Is it just what your perceived wants and desires? Is it just because there's nothing wrong with, with God's blessing? There's nothing, I mean, there's all these things that are good things as long as we don't make them ultimate things. Idolatry is not just taking a bad thing and putting it a, above Christ on our heart. Idolatry can be putting our family or our job, or it can be putting anything 
above Christ. Then he uses relevant examples of his day. We don't have to go too far into them. Read through the three chapters. But Paul's just saying, be governed by what is good for others over your own preferences. And he closes this section in verse 31. He says this, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Paul continues to say, look, I know it's not about me. Paul says, I'm the biggest knucklehead there is. He says, everything I've accomplished in my life is garbage, is worthless compared to the surpassing value of just knowing Jesus Christ and being found in him. Richest man in the world. And then he, chapter 11, verse 1, he says this. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's what it is, church. It's not follow the pastor's example or follow the, it's all of us as Christians are like, hey, you follow my example and I'll follow your example as we try to be like Jesus together. That's the goal. It's not complicated. We like to make it complicated. If people say, what's your church about? We can be like, we're a whole bunch of messy, broken people all trying to be like Jesus and we love each other. That's what our church is about. That's it. And you can't do ministry unless you love Jesus. All of ministry has to be an overflow of your love for him or you're doing religion or it's a job. It's not a calling. I would have walked away from this. I'm an, I'm, I mean, I'm a network engineer by trade. I work with computers. You know how easy that is? I mean, there's nothing in my flesh that says, yes, this is what I want to do. But the call of God. And the, the benefit and the blessing is that the difficulties cause me to press in more and more. And there's been times, I mean, Jamie knows, he, you know, everybody, not that anybody here doesn't know I cry all the time, but I'll, I'll just find my, myself at a place and I'll just be weeping and just broken. And I'll start out just like this, like, you know, just like, Lord, I give, I'm just so tired, I give up. And then by the end, I'm still weeping, but I'm weeping with joy. Because <laughs> he's met me in that place in the way that you can't read about. See, I love when King David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because you can tell somebody how good food is. And you can describe it and maybe they'll get, but until you taste, until you see for yourself, man, there's nothing better. And I'll start out just broken in his presence and I'll leave so filled with a peace that surpasses understanding. So you've heard me say, Jesus' invitation is follow me. Come and see. Follow me. See if I am who I claim to be. See if I can be trusted. And then as we follow, he invites us deeper and deeper still. Abide in me. Remain in me. Make, I love the best definition of the word abide to me is, I, I read somewhere it said, make your home in me. That place of refuge and sanctuary, that place of comfort where you can put on your sweatpants and your really comfortable socks. That's all I wanted for Christmas. I know I'm old when all I wanted was just really thick, comfortable socks. And like, that excited me. When you're a little kid, you don't want to open socks. I was like, yes, I love those socks. You know, that place where you can just, just you know, put your feet up, rest, make your home 
in Jesus. My father used to say once, figure out what you want out of life. This is before he became a Christian. And everything you do, every choice you make, are you moving closer or further from that goal? When he became a Christian, it changed, right? Find out what God wants for your life. Align yourself with his will for your life and everything you do, every choice you make, every decision you make, are you moving closer into the will of God for your life or further away? And there's a lot of reasons we move further away. We believe the lies of the enemy telling us we don't deserve anything good and we're worthless. You are loved. If nobody's ever told you that, you are loved. Jesus died for you. I heard somebody say once, if you were the only person in the world, Jesus would have still died for you. He died for us individually. He died for us collectively, church. We're loved. So we should ask with each choice, are we moving closer toward God, toward God or further away from his will? Is everything I'm doing with the heart and the intention of winning people for Jesus? You know, next time somebody criticizes you or says something negative toward you, you know, you know I mean, everybody wants to fight, so you can, you can, you can go down that road because people expect that. But next time somebody criticizes you, and don't be like sarcastic about it, be like, let me pray for you. Listen, right now, what you need is me to pray for you. I mean, my wife tries to do that when we get in a little discussion. What you need right now is to pray. The devil's in you. It's like, he's in me now. <laughs> but I mean sincerely. The next time somebody offends you or criticizes you, say, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but can I just pray for you, with you? Is that okay? And watch. Watch anger fade away. Not always. But man, people are hurting. And they expect to fight. What they don't expect is to be loved. They don't expect to be met in their brokenness with somebody who says, man, I don't know what you went through, but I don't want to judge you. I just want to, I just want to walk with you. I just want to help you out. Because I was broken once, too. See, we forget. You know, we're, we're, we're a mess, and God picks us up, and he cleans us up, and he meets us, and he loves on us. And we, you know, we start to look good, and we forget. And we see other people in their mess, and we gossip about them, and we judge them. And we forget. So as the worship team comes up this morning, can we resolve together to press in more deeply into Jesus? By reading his word, by praying more alone and together, by becoming more involved in the community here and the community at large, by serving others. So this morning, if you're not a follower, Jesus is asking you, follow me. I mean, if you're here and you think you've done a good job in control of your own life, okay. I mean, I don't know about you, but man, I made a mess. Jesus is saying, follow me. And if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is saying, follow me closer. Fall deeper in love with me. See what life looks like as you walk closer and closer with me. Jesus challenges you. Focus, press in, rededicate yourself. For those living as God's people, Colossians 3 says, Since then, since you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things.
your heart, your mind. In other words, put your focus on him for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory.